Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I dream the dream of days to come. Where sponsorship is high and money is forthcoming. That's beautiful, Kevin. I really added a voice onto that one, too. <laughs> I really was trying to go for something there. Listeners, we love creating this podcast, but it does cost money. Please don't make me sell my Angel record. Oh, my gosh. The original cast recording of Angel. That, like, nobody has. Nobody has it. If you like what we are doing and want us to keep doing Doing more of it, please head over to patreon.com. What? That's P A T R E O N.com. Patreon. I feel Patreon. Yeah, Patreon. 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 Yeah, once you're there, search for Behind the Curtain Broadway's Living Legends. And of course, we don't expect to give without receiving some great rewards. Such rewards include behind the scenes videos, shout outs on future episodes, mm. or episodes, depending on what part of the country you're from, because <laughs> I said episodes, and early access to some of our podcasts. Hell, for the right price, Kevin and I will come to your apartment and act out all of Agnes of God. <laughs> so head over, friends, to P A T R E O N.com to help us out. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain, and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And maybe follow us on the Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to our podcasts on Broadway World and Stitcher. Today's guest is one of Broadway's most respected and most versatile music directors. That's one of the many hats he wears. Starting his career in the pit and moving then steadily towards the director's chair, our our guest's talent and ability to fully enhance the musical compositions of the works he conducts seems to know no bounds. Mm-hmm. Versatility in projects has been our guest's guiding philosophy, whether it is conducting the madcap fun of new musicals like Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and The Full Monty, or bringing texture and nuance to some of Broadway's largest orchestras with the Lincoln Center revivals of South Pacific and The King and I. Our guest keeps surprising his audiences and perhaps himself. <laughs> To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Aarons and Flaherty, Jack O'Brien, Maury Yeston, and Bartlett Shear, here is one of Broadway's favorite conductors and the artistic director of Master Voices, which we're going to talk about towards the end, I'm very excited about, is Tony Award winner Ted Sperling. Hi, Ted. Hi, guys. Hi, Ted. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for coming. I'm surprised you even had an hour to give to us. We appreciate it so much. A true New Yorker all the way through. Yes, I was born in Manhattan, um, lived in the Bronx as a very little boy, and then my parents moved to Westchester to New Rochelle. And yeah. Yeah. Was theater always a part of your life growing up, or is it something you discovered later on? 
My sister was a little bit more interested, I think, when we were kids. Um, and my parents didn't go to the theater on a regular basis, but we did have a few choice cast albums at home. Oh, yeah? You know, LPs. Remember of course, those? we collect them. <laughs> <laughs> and so my sister and I did know a few shows backwards and forwards because we only had around three or four at home. Yeah. So uh, we well, knew My Fair Lady and Feather on the Roof very well. And um, oddly, 1776 was a yes, good, good choice. One of my favorites. <laughs> a good choice. So we would sing in the car. My mom was just reminiscing recently about especially Fiddler we used to sing a lot of. And I think it meant a lot to her that I just recently did it. On yeah. Yes, of course. But my sister was in shows before I was. And then I was drafted to play in the pits um, in high school. Right. I actually played Perchik at age six, I think. Oh, in a, a Jewish, at six? Yes, in a Jewish wow. day camp. Uh, <laughs> Who was Tevya? <laughs> I have no idea. How An old was he? eight-year-old veteran. <laughs> he was eight-year-old veteran, yes. And I think the original Broadway production was still running. Oh, my was, gosh. I know it was Crazy. when I was six. So I don't know how they got permission. To <laughs> they probably just did it. <laughs> Do you remember the first Broadway musical that your family took you to? I remember the first three, and I don't remember exactly the order. Um... But I do remember seeing Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady. Oh, my gosh. That was at the Eurus, I think it was yeah. called. Yes, that. yeah. <laughs> um, and I saw a West Side Story revival. And I think I may have seen Yul Brynner in The King and I, actually. Oh, oh my God. So those were all very, you know, big, oh, impressive yeah. shows. I saw them from up in the balcony. I remember noticing even at that time when I wasn't there that experienced in theater that Rex Harrison seemed always to have three spotlights on him and none on anybody else. <laughs> and you would notice when he would exit, because suddenly all this light would go off. Right. <laughs> all the rest of the black. Sort of dim <laughs> That's hysterical. That's, That's hysterical. <laughs> yeah. What kind of music were you listening to growing up besides show tunes? Well, my parents and my grandparents were great classical musical lovers. Mm -hmm. And so that's the music that I grew up listening to at home primarily. Um, my grandfather, who I never knew on my mother's side, uh, was a doctor by profession, but a, a violinist by love. Uh -huh. yeah. And um, I'm the only boy in my generation in the immediate family. And so somehow it was communicated to me subtly and without words, particularly, that his violins were in waiting for me. Uh -huh. um, and that it was my duty to take that on. So I remember at one point just leaving our house in New Rochelle and on the steps to the house, turning to my mother and saying, so when do I start violin lessons already? <laughs> and you were really young when Five, you started. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I my mean. gosh. So I, I had a wonderful local music teacher named Sarah Rubenstein uh -huh. who lived just a block away. And her house was full of music. She had six pianos in her house. What? And she taught little kids like me recorder as a way to get started. That's yeah. how I started, yeah. And then moved you to the piano. And she would pair you with another pianist around your age and level so that you could play together because she right. believed that music making shouldn't be solitary. Beautiful. Oh, how brilliant. And I studied with her from age six, I think, through the end of high school. Wow. So she was a very big influence. You learned all, that, incredible. all the music theory, all, I mean, all of it. That's she was, yes. And, you know, she didn't make it onerous. It was fun for me to learn music through her and to practice. I always looked forward to practicing the piano. Huh. And I started on violin even earlier than piano. Um, and I always found that a little bit more difficult to so, motivate myself to practice. Mm. Which composer were you first attracted to? Bach. Bach. Mm. Um, and I don't know exactly why. I mean, I still... Re like I, I marvel at his music today. I'm conducting the Paul Taylor Dance Company season nice. right now. Yeah. I'm sharing that with Don York, the long-term music director there. 
And um, Don very graciously gave me two different Bach programs to conduct. And I'm in rehearsal for these. Just I can't believe how brilliant they are. And you know that he wrote them as if you were writing a letter. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. You know, and orchestrated them and copied the individual parts. And we've lost over half of his music. You know, they, they used his, his you know, handwritten things to wrap fish in. Yeah. You know, when, once the concert it was It wasn't precious. Done, yeah, right. it was the orchestra parts, but all that. I just can't believe the imagination and the depth of feeling yeah. and Invented. how much he wrote. And every movement is a new inspiration. Huh. And, uh, huh. and you're doing the whole season, is that right? Well, it's a three-week season yeah. here in New York. And there, there are programs every night but Monday. It's like a Broadway schedule. Yeah. And Don and I are splitting the pieces, but it doesn't mean we're splitting the performances because each performance is a different lineup of three dances and they're different literally every night. So on a given night, I may be doing one, he may be doing two. Right. Sometimes I do all three, he does all three. Okay. There are a few that are with tape. So each night is a fun adventure. That's changing you know? every night. You're like, what am I going to conduct tonight? That's right. And I'm actually playing piano <clears throat> on one of the Bach programs because they're pieces that I played as a kid. And when what? I heard that we were going to be doing them with the dancers, I thought, I can't just stand there and wave my arms. I have to get my hands on the yes. piano for at least part of this. So I'm splitting that program with the, with the, the main pianist. That's really cool. That's it's a really real thrill to get to play oh, those yeah. That is so Nostalgic, exciting. too, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, were your parents supportive of you going into this? It's an interesting question. They were, of course, very supportive of my studying music and very helpful um, in guiding me in that regard. And I, I remember I was very sensitive to criticism of my playing mm-hmm. as a kid. And my dad, at one point after a piano recital, told me he didn't really like one of the pieces very much. And I think I took it as a sort of a criticism of my playing, and mm-hmm. I had to clarify that with him <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> um, but when it came to making a profession of music, they were cautious on my behalf. They're both doctors. Mm-hmm. And... Um, they just, I think they knew that being in the performing arts can be a very difficult life. And they saw that I had interests in other areas as well. And they didn't think I had to be a musician, that it was the only option for me. So they encouraged me not to go to a conservatory if I didn't feel like I must. And to, to leave myself a little room to explore other avenues. Um, but once I told them, basically after the first year of college, I was pretty determined to, to make music, they were supportive. That's wonderful. I do That's, remember, though, I got a Broadway show, which we can talk about, oh, yeah. very soon after finishing college. And I remember I was you know, doing a full-time Broadway gig. And my mom, at one point, I think not just understanding what goes into all that, she said, when are you going to get the real job? <laughs> you know, She thought I needed a day job, too. <laughs> Hopefully the Tony Award is, yeah. is, is shown her. <laughs> no, so they've been incredibly supportive. And unfortunately, my dad just recently passed away just um, a couple sorry. weeks ago. So I still talk about him sometimes in the present. Yeah. Of course, of course. Him. Yeah. That's uh, wonderful. And, and you went to you studied uh, you went to Yale. Um, yeah, so I started at Yale thinking that I would be an English major, um, and signed up for a lot of musical activities simultaneously. And after that year, first of all, I didn't really love the English major, and I didn't really want to hang out with the other English majors. Right. And I also found that I was always thinking about music <laughs> and always had music running through my mind. Yeah. And I thought, well, if that's the case, why am I trying to do something else? Yeah. So, right, which brings us perhaps back to New York then, and and you getting on your first credit on Broadway is is I love that it says synthesizers mm-hmm. uh, for Sunday in the Park with George in 1984. Right. Um, how in the world did that come into your I know, Since a you're a classical, you were because I you were a classically trained piano player, which is 
and then you're doing Broadway. Well, I have to backtrack just a bit. Please. I had some important influences um, growing up that pushed me towards an interest in the theater. One is my uh, first cousin, Nina, who went to one of these amazing music theater camps every summer. It's French Woods. I'm yeah, sure classic. Oh, yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. She and her sisters all went there for many years. And so she... Uh, always encouraged my love of the theater. And in fact, I music directed a, a production that she directed of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Nice. Um, I also had some wonderful theater teachers in high school, and we did a lot of ambitious work. I went to Horace Mann. Um, we even did things like Britain's Noah's Flood. Oh, my Foley's, God. You know, in a high school? Yes. Jeez. I, did, I music directed a production of Jacques Brel. So you were music junior. directing like growing up. I was I mean, even you in were... some of these. I was Shem in Noah's Flood. <laughs> nice. I was Schroeder in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Did, of course. Wait, did you just hear, though, he said Jacques Brel was one of the high school shows. Yes. Yeah. That's, so that's, I love it. <laughs> I want to go to your high school. Well, that was a student-organized production, actually, that was directed and produced by students. That's marvelous. Lucky. Um, we did Dido and Aeneas as <laughs> our high school musical. <laughs> my senior year. Amazing. <laughs> um, amazing. So, yeah, it was a very fertile place to be. Um, they bought a harpsichord for me to play there because I expressed a lot of interest in Bach and that material. And, um, awesome. And then um, I also want to mention Victoria Clark. I don't know if you've interviewed her yet. Not yet. No, not you yet. <laughs> we will yes. be. Oh, most definitely. So I met Vicky um, Christmas time of my freshman year at college. And um, there was... Uh, there probably still is a chorus at Yale that is the professional church choir there mm-hmm. and sings for the official Sunday services. And it's a small group. It's only like 16 singers. Yeah. And you have to audition. You have to be a good reader, good musician. And they had advertised that they were doing a Bach concert and they were looking for soloists. So I auditioned for that to be one of the soloists and I got the gig. And they invited me to go caroling with them on one of the Christmas yeah. nights. And so I said, sure. And as I was caroling, I met Vicky, who was already in the group. And it turns out she ended up being one of the soloists in that concert, too. Crazy. And we were singing next to each other and having fun and adding extra notes and harmonizing and stuff like that. We just hit it off. So um, we became fast friends. I'd actually met her earlier that year because she starred as Mabel in a school production of Pirates of Penzance that my cousin Nina, who I already mentioned, was Ruth in. So I had already seen her perform and thought she was amazing. And I had introduced myself to her on the steps of the music library. Um, And then we reconnected on this caroling evening. And so um, we went on to do a, a lot of shows together at school. And she was a director at that point as much as a performer. Oh. And she still is. She's in oh, fact yeah. about to go direct something in Denmark. Oh my gosh. Um, so we did a whole host of shows together where she was the director and I was the music director. And one of the, f- the first one we did together was Side by Side by Sondheim. <laughs> so this is leading towards the Sunday in yeah, the Park. Sure, yeah, sure, sure. Um, and uh, this was in 1981. So Side by Side at that point was a seven-year-old show. Yeah. Um, and in the interim, Sweeney Todd had played on Broadway. So we were interested in including some Sweeney in it. Coincidentally, Sondheim was invited to do a talk at Yale only a couple of months before our production went up. And it was in a very small venue. It was in someone's home, basically. So it was by invitation only. And we didn't have invitations, but we wrangled our way in. Um, And everybody was so awestruck to be that close to Stephen Sondheim that everybody was too shy to ask him any questions. 
but I wasn't because I was about to do one of his shows and I had a very specific like, request. Yes. So I raised my hand and I said, we're about to do Side by Side. Do you think we could have permission to include Sweeney? Do you think it would be okay for us to tinker at all with the show? So he said, let's talk about it. He did give us permission. He sent us music. Bold, Ted. Wow. Um, so I was already a little bit on his radar. Yeah. Then a year, the next year was the year of Merrily We Roll Along mm-hmm. on Broadway. And our good friend David Loud, who was my classmate at Yale, was in the cast. And Robert Kimball, who wrote the liner notes for the cast mm-hmm. album, was our teacher that semester at Yale uh, in a cl- class about... Irving Berlin, I think. Nice. Um, so every Wednesday matinee, he would see Merrily, and every Thursday he'd come to Yale to teach us about Irving Berlin. But the first half hour or so of every class was really, what happened to Merrily? What's going this on to Merrily? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> we were all complete, you know, fans of the show, obsessed with it. So they were making radical changes in previews. Yeah. So he was always giving us the latest. That's awesome. And we went to see it multiple times, even though it ran only a, a few weeks. And then we were heartbroken when it closed because yeah. we loved it. Um. So Vicky and I looked at each other after it closed and said, you know, it's all about kids. It starts and ends at a graduation. Why don't we do it at our graduation uh, show this spring? Because it was Vicky's last year, and it was her graduation. <laughs> so we, again, wrote to Sondheim and said, could we have permission to do your show? We love it. And he said yes. <laughs> and then started a whole... Uh, amazing correspondence with Sondheim because you couldn't just call up MTI at that point and rent it. It was hot off the press, you know, and it was sort of a mess because they had made so many changes right. and then no one had gone through and cleaned it no all up No one's going to pay to do that after... So every week I would like run excitedly to my mailbox and there'd be a huge package in a manila envelope from Stephen Sondheim full of the most recent version or alternate versions we could try. So we put the blob back in, yep, for example. Yeah, yep. um, George Firth actually wrote us some new connecting material to get from scene to scene. <laughs> this is amazing. Um, a lot of the original cast came up to see it. They gave our cast their sweatshirts oh from my, the original production. What? Like that said, Best Pal. Yeah, 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 totally. And Morrison gave that to our Mary, who's <laughs> Amber Edwards, who you may know just made a documentary about Vince Giordano and the yeah. Nighthawks. Oh yeah. God. The producer and director Crazy. of that film. So... And we used the full orchestration. Um, we did, and we actually performed it in the room on which Vicky was graduated later that day. <laughs> um, that day, Crazy. well, it was a, normally they have the graduations outdoors, but yeah. it was a rainy weekend, so oh they had to God. move it inside. And so she was, she had a graduation ceremony on our stage. That's, That's incredible. <laughs> which we constructed in a lecture hall. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Sondheim didn't come up to see it, but I sent him cassettes to listen to, and he wrote a lovely note back. Mm-hmm. So when I graduated from college, Vicky had already left a year before. I had one more year left after Merrily. Um, and she'd gotten a grant as an assistant director from a government program that was uh, specifically for opera and musical theater people to have apprenticeships. Huh. And she worked with uh, Dottie Danner, Dorothy Danner, mm-hmm. who was in the original Once Upon a Mattress mm-hmm. on yeah. Broadway, and which we had done together at Yale, Vicky and I. And so when I was looking for something to do, I thought I might go to a conducting program, and I applied to the Juilliard and Curtis programs. Mm-hmm. But I orchestrated a brand new musical my senior year in college, and it so absorbed all my time. I had no time to prepare an audition for a serious classical conducting program, because mm-hmm. those are very daunting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I delayed my audition by a year. And this musical, just as a side note, was a 
F. Scott Fitzgerald short story that was adapted by three students at Yale. Wow. And the composer of the show is still a dear friend of mine, and he's written the music for almost every good TV show you can imagine. Nice. Um, so I came to New York without a plan, really, because I w- had put off graduate school for a year. Right. So I decided to apply for the same grant that Vicky had gotten. And I decided to apply for it with Paul Gimignani, um, whom I did not know. Ah. So I, I forget the order. I either wrote to him first or called him. And the, whatever I tried first didn't get a response, but the second did. Uh-huh. And he, I guess he called me back. And he said, I don't really believe in grants, and so I'm not really interested. But um, I'm rehearsing a show called The Rink, and we're at 890 Broadway, and I always take, we always have lunch from 1 to 2, and I always bring my lunch. So if you want to come down and meet me, just show up one day. <laughs> wow. So the next day, I was there at 1 o'clock. Oh, my God. And I happened to bring the grant application with me just in case. And in the interim... He had mentioned this to Sondheim, and I don't know, I guess maybe he saw it on my resume that I had done merrily or whatever. And Sondheim, having heard the work I did, right. gave me some kind of good recommendation. Right. Um, so overnight, Paul had changed his mind. So he said, let's do it. So I pulled out the application. He pulled out a Sharpie. He filled it out on the spot. And he said the two shows that we'd be working on were the next Sondheim musical and the next Michael Bennett musical. And so I was, of course, over the moon. <laughs> yeah. He hadn't even heard me play. Right. Um, <laughs> it was an incredible leap of faith on his part. But I also remember, we were just applying for an internship when I would basically be watching. Yeah. Mm-hmm. was I, what I thought. Um, then we waited to see if I would get the grant. And I got a call from John Mauchery, who's another big mm-hmm. Broadway mm-hmm. Uh, music director and, you know, Lots of impresario, yeah. maestro, Recordings opera, and, yeah. wonderful conductor, who's been a great advisor to me um, over the years. too, I want to say. He, he does like Well, he revived of, of, um, mm-hmm. On Your Toes for yes. Broadway. Oh, that's right. right. Yeah. after that. Um, and he, got, he called me and he said, I have a grant application in front of me with your name on it. <laughs> You know, with Paul Gimignani and Stephen Sondheim saying they want you to work on their next show, which is fantastic. Congratulations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but my question for you is, why do we need to give a government grant for this? Because oh. this is a commercial production. There should be enough money to hire you. And I said, listen, that's not up to me. Yeah, right. Uh, however, you, however yeah. you want to work it out, as long as I get to do this, yeah. I'm <laughs> delighted. So he called Gimignani, I think. I think I know that, actually. Um, and so the next thing I knew, Vicky had an audition for Sunday in the Park with George for one of the Celeste roles. Mm-hmm. And it was actually at the Booth Theater. Yep. I don't think people have auditions these days in the theaters nope. ahead of the show. This, no. is, a, this is a theme with our podcast because right. so many actors used to go on stage at the Majestic or right. wherever yeah. and sing. So Vicky <laughs> brought me to be her pianist Yes, because I used to go play all of her auditions yeah. at that point. And she did a great audition and Lapine and Gimignani were very nice, and they said, thank you so much. Um, and then Paul called out from the house. He said, Ted, meet me in the wings. So I waited in the wings. Paul came up, and he said, well, I talked to my cherry, and in case the grant doesn't work out, I'm holding a position for you. Wow. So at wow. this point, he actually had heard me play, because okay. I had yeah. just played for Billy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the guy can play. Good. <laughs> and ultimately, I did not get the grant. Why? And... Um, he had he stuck to his promise. He held this keyboard position open for me, 
And so I was one of the rehearsal pianists and orchestra musicians for the show. Wow. It was an amazing, amazing sequence of events for me. And I, yeah. you know, I have tried to thank him over the years for that and also for his mentorship during the actual rehearsal and performance of that show because what a way to start. You know, in the meantime, I actually had subbed on On Your Toes. Okay. Um, so I had a little bit of experience playing in the pit. It was a piano book. Yeah. On Your Toes had two upright pianos. Nice. Oh, wow. Uh, and I actually played both of the books. Yeah. Um, but I was a novice with synthesizers. Which were relatively they new were, to Broadway yeah. pits and orchestrations in the pits. That they were. Yeah. Um, and Sunday. Michael Starobin was very interested in synthesizers. Mm-hmm. We had a state-of-the-art instrument for Sunday. It was huge. And it had a wooden case, <laughs> actual wood. Um, it had a, uh, a weighted keyboard, so it felt more like playing a piano. Mm-hmm. It had a lot of keys. And then I had <clears throat> a little machine called a sequencer that sat on top of it. You just pushed buttons on it. And then I had another little keyboard that was hanging to my right on the wall that I didn't actually have to play, but it generated sounds that this little box controlled. So when we got to the yeah. chromaloom, there was a whole sequence of buttons I had to push in just the right order. And if I screwed any aspect of that up, the chromium had no sound. (laughs) So it was a very high pressure situation. (laughs) Yeah. And the other thing that was a disaster was the recording session, which was at the old RCA Mm -hmm. studios on 6th Avenue, which don't exist anymore. Um, The idea was that instead of hauling this giant synthesizer out of the pit, they would rent a second one and have it set up at the recording studio. But all the programming had to match. Right. And it was all very specific to Michael's work. He had done all the programming. Right. And the way you fed programming into a synthesizer back then <laughs> was with a cassette machine. <laughs> was with the cassette recorder, you would play a cassette that would be connected to the synth, and it would take around an hour. And oh at the end, God. it would beep and say, okay, you're done. But if at any point it beeped before that hour, you had to start all over again. Oh, oh my God. And it didn't take for the second instrument. And time is money in that studio. They were starting to record and the synthesizer was not working. Oh, my gosh. And they said, go to the theater and get your instrument. So I walked over to the booth and I... You you went? Personally, (laughs) hauled this giant thing into a taxi. No way. Yes. And and it was all the way in the corner of this tiny cramped pit. (laughs) Yeah. I was missing the recording in the meantime. I was sweating buckets. It was a crazy situation. And I think we were recording putting it together as the first number that day, which was a lot, a lot of work for me in it. Yeah. Anyway, it ended up okay. But if that number <laughs> feels a little panicky on the album, that's why. <laughs> I'm going to go back and listen and see. I feel it. Just hear someone crying in what, the background. <laughs> I mean, what a great way to It was unbelievable. Start, yeah. I mean, and both Gimignani and Sondheim, mm-hmm. and also Lapine, I should en- mention, were very... Um, Solicitous of me and knowing knowing that this was my first show, mm. they they were keeping an eye out for me. Even in the midst of a new production, all uh, which of is that, amazing. They, it, right? it, it this really was is. a troubled production for a long time. Oh, yeah. It was a very ambitious project. Uh, yeah. The second act had never been workshopped really and was being written on the spot. Songs yeah. were coming in during previews. Yeah. There was a lot of pressure on it. But I learned a lot of really important things. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm so grateful to have had that kind of mentorship. And I, I stuck my foot in my mouth a few times. And even Sondheim pulled me out of the theater to give me a lecture about like how you talk to stars. And sure. How to behave. And that's how and, you learn, too. Yeah. I mean, that's Absolutely. just part. And I think it's cool that you had this up, this really classically focused upbringing. And Gemignani, you know, is a great musician, drummer, you know, yeah. but kind of a different worldview of, of, of music from he you. He taught me a lot about things that I would never have thought about. The especially more how to work so- with actors. And actors love working with Paul because he talks to them in language that they understand. Right. And it's always coming from an, 
a character point of view. And yep. it's never like this eighth note needs to be longer or you're a little flat on this. You know, he was always talking in language that they could understand. And he was always right on it for them, too. Yeah. He was always watching the stage fully, completely engaged. Yeah. And he also manages to keep a very uh, friendly and lively atmosphere in a pit, mm-hmm. which I, mm-hmm. I learned quickly because that show ran over a year and a half, I think. Um, you know, you have to keep morale up in the pit. Yeah, people are stuck in one position all night long. They're stuck next to the same people every in night. This little corner in this That's dark right. space. In the dark, they can't yeah. see the audience. The audience can't see them. They yeah, have, they can't. You know, it's very. I've done one show as Broadway show as an actor, and I can tell you from personal experience, it's a very different experience. <laughs> um, so he keeps the tone very light in the pit. He wow. sends notes around. He makes vi- yeah. visual jokes, and um, so I learned a lot about how to maintain. Did you stay with it the whole... I did. I took a leave of absence the following summer, after the show had already played for around a year, Mm -hmm. to do the Merrily production at La Jolla Playhouse. Oh, Oh, yes. So that was a wonderful circle for me. Yeah. uh, To work on that show with Sondheim, with Lapine. Um, An amazing cast. You know, Chip Zion, John Rubenstein, Heather McRae, Marin Maisie. Oh, my gosh. um, Very young Marin Maisie. um, In La Jolla. Yeah. Yeah. And it was only a year into the renaissance of La Jolla Playhouse. Mm -hmm. Um, fantastic experience, and I got to play the part on stage that David Loud played. In That's the what I thought. I was <laughs> congratulations, <laughs> and I was then Full also circle. the pianist in the pit, and Michael Starabin was the conductor. It's oh, amazing. so then you like basically knew every. It was everybody. great. It was a yeah. wonderful experience. Working under the baton of another conductor, what makes a strong conductor? You've talked about Paul's ability to keep the room light, but what? Give us some other traits. Well, another thing I really appreciated from Paul. There's no question where the beat is. Mm. There's no question about what he wants. He's not a, like a full of frills kind of guy. Um, and I think that's really one of his great strengths is that when he puts a downbeat, now, there's no question about You don't even have to think. Mm-hmm. You just play. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what musicians want. They, want that, they don't want to have to interpret your beat. Mm-hmm. They want it just to be clear and so strong from within you that you are the music, mm-hmm. that that's what they're watching. They're watching the music in physical form coming from you, and then there's no question about how you want them to play it. Um, also, just the very basic things like shows. I don't know if you've talked about this with other mm-hmm. musicians on your podcast, but one of the things that marks a difference between a Broadway show and, say, an opera mm-hmm. is something called a vamp. <laughs> um, you know, In opera, the maestro con- is in control of everything. And the singers are expected to watch the maestro at all times. If you sit, as I have, in the front row of the Met, right behind the conductor, you really feel it. Their eyes are always, always on intensity, towards yeah. the center, no matter what they're doing on stage. And that's something I've had to learn now later in life when I've started conducting opera, that they want that from me. Mm-hmm. That I'm so accommodating because I'm used to the theater mode, which is where you're more of an accompanist in some ways. Right, right. Um, and, you, and you don't want to disturb the reality of the action on stage by having the actor look down in the pit. Oh, that's mm. interesting. You know? that's so, so fascinating. So it's more your job to try to intuit what the actor's going to want, mm-hmm. give them signals that they can catch out of the corner of their eye. Um, and vamps come into that because... You often have to adjust the length of a piece of music to how long it takes to say something or do something on stage. Right. So they have measure or measures that can be repeated at will to, f- to make the music longer or shorter so it fits. Right. And 
one of the things the orchestra really needs from the conductor is to know, are we repeating these measures or not? And if so, how many times and when are we done? And he is so clear about it. I loved his technique mm-hmm. of how to show that. So I've adopted that as my own ever since. And as a music director as well, uh, how, does he, how, do you, how does he show it? I'm just curious. It's very basic. Yeah. I mean, it shouldn't be such a mystery. But, no, I know. But basically, his left index finger goes up the minute you're in one of the vamps. So you know you're mm-hmm. in the vamp. And then he just does a very simple prep and then out when you're out. And we're on the downbeat of the next measure. Right. Yeah. Amazing. Um, Huh. But you know, it's all about the left hand. He never does anything different with the right yeah. to do that. So you know where to look. I've seen that, and it's incredibly consistent. So yep. um, there's so, no, no, never. And now with monitors yeah. and everything, yeah, right, you well, know what I mean. Like it's absolutely. it's, it's really. Has, Was there a conductor that you wish you could have seen conduct that you did not get the chance to see? Well, the musician that I'm really sad never to have witnessed in action is Bach. Yeah. And that's what I wrote my uh, application essay to college about is that and it's I've been reminded about that recently having performed a number of his works is like who was he working with? Were they geniuses too? Were they all incredible musicians and that's what inspired him to write the stuff or were because if you read his writing, he sounds like he was very unhappy with a lot of the people he was working yeah. with. He had to work with a lot of boys because he yeah. was a schoolmaster and he was um but the music is so hard and so complicated and so Genius! Yeah. So you just wonder, what were those performances really like? Right? Were yeah. they right. amazing? Can I go back there? Yeah. Or would we have been horrified not <laughs> to hear them? You know? <laughs> no, I, totally. I'm so curious, and oh, I'll never know. I know. Build a time That's machine. A we'll I build know. a time machine. Doctor Who. Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Aha! In my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So after Sunday, the next thing you get onto is Rosa on Broadway. What's Rosa? <laughs> I don't think it was actually maybe the, the next thing. Um, but yes, I can tell you about Rosa. Ooh. Um, Rosa was a Hal Prince musical. Mm-hmm. I think it might have been the one immediately preceding Phantom. Yes. Yes. And after the grind. Yes. Yes. After the grind. Yes. So Hal had this stretch of shows that were problematic and um, Rosa is based on a movie called Madame Rosa and the Broadway incarnation, I think the movie stars Simone Signore and the Broadway show started, starred Georgia Brown from mm-hmm. Oliver, amazing earth force of a woman. Yes. And it was about, I think she was sort of a madam or collector of people and it was all street urchins and peddlers. And I never really knew much about the show because I was hired very last minute for it. Oh. <laughs> um, the show was written by a French composer who had never done a Broadway show before. And he decided the orchestra had to have three keyboard books. But for some reason, they only orchestrated for two. <laughs> and this third keyboard book had no music. <laughs> uh, and they, they hired someone to play it. 
who was flummoxed by the fact that there was no music to play from and either quit or was let go. And they asked me to come in and they gave me the other two keyboard books or the scores or anything. And they said, and the composer would sort of hum to me and say, I would like it to be a little more like this. And, and uh, I had to sort of make up my part. You were like just kind of orchestrating it on your own. I don't know. It's, it's dim a little bit in my memory. It's a long time ago. And Louis St. Louis was the conductor and music director. Also, I learned a well, lot about get him. on our podcast. Yeah, amazing. Him, right, you should right. talk to him. Oh, my gosh. I learned very valuable lessons from him. The most vivid for me was yeah. when to lose your temper and when not to lose your temper. Oh, and, and when's an example? Example, not well, to lose first your of temper. all, nobody really wants a music director ever to lose your temper. No, truth. You're not supposed to be the diva in the equation. Yep. There are enough people. And your job is generally to make everybody feel comfortable mm-hmm. and well Harmony. taken care of. Mm-hmm. But I did see Lewis in situations where he could easily have blown his top and didn't because he knew it was not going to help the situation. And then I saw him almost sort of fake um, an outburst because he knew that's what was needed in the moment to get something fixed. Um, And so that was really great to see. That's cool. Um, But I never actually saw the show because I didn't play any any of the cast rehearsals. By the time I was hired, we were already into tech. I was hired late. Mm -hmm. And I immediately went into this very cramped pit again where I had no view of the (laughs) stage. So I only heard the show. Okay. Um, It had a very good pit. Ted Nash, who is... A, a jazz superstar right now. He had two Grammy. He won oh, two yeah, Grammy. Yeah. This yeah. Year. Oh yeah. He was in the pit. Oh my gosh. Jamie Haddad, who's an amazing uh-huh. ethnic percussionist, was there. Um, so it was a it was a really good pit. But I can't say that the show sounded like a hit to me from what I could hear. <laughs> and it closed in two weeks. Yeah. It so, was like it was a blip. There but, we go. What do you look for out of your uh, your pit? When you're conducting, what what do you look for? Obviously, each show has a stylistic sure. necessities, but energy wise, temperament wise, what do you like? Well, I think you you always want to plan for a long run, even if you don't achieve one. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to hire people who are going to get along, because as I described, you're stuck next to each other. It's like yeah. you're on an airplane. Shoved in oh the yeah, tr- you're in the trenches. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I've been in pits. I played in um, the pit for the Mystery of Edwin Drood for around a year. Oh yeah. And there were actually two big fights in that pit where people weren't talking to each other who they were playing right next to. Um, and it was very uncomfortable. Oh, uh, yeah. So, first of all, let's just look for good people who are adults who know <laughs> what the gig is, who mm-hmm. are going to be reliable. Um, you've probably talked before about the history of pit orchestras and Broadway. We actually have not. We're going to talk to John Miller in a couple days. Great. Yeah. yeah. Well, he'll talk to you more about this. Yeah. Great. But there's, you know, there's a trajectory where there used to be house bands. Yep. That just came with the, sh- the theater, no matter what the show yep. was. Then um, that started to disintegrate. And then there was a period when you were hired for a show and you were expected to be like an actor and be there every night. But there's a problem that, that no one wants to hire understudy musicians. Mm. You know, if you're an actor, you have an understudy that's paid for by the production. So if you're sick, it's not really your problem. Mm-hmm. If you're a musician, there's no backup like that. And f- so if it's on you to have the backup, then you, it has to be worth something to the person to yeah. be a backup. You have to be guaranteed right. enough performances for it to be worth your while to learn the show and to be on call. Yeah. Um, so this whole system of subbing has evolved and it's become, you know, codified. Mm-hmm. And there, are, as a conductor, certain things are still up to you, how you want to handle that mm-hmm. situation. So I actually like it when people take off to do other gigs. I think it's very healthy as a musician not to play the same 
show every and we should say to our audiences who may not know our listeners that uh, i forget the exact number but i think it's like half of the shows a week right you know up to half up to half that's right because the conductor ultimately has the music director supervisor has the say but you might you you could up to half the shows a week you could take off off. that's right so i mean that's not like an actor saying i'm just only going to do four shows this week but but a lot of it's based on this need to have subs and you can't just have one yeah what yeah. if that person's not available and you're really sick? Yeah. So you have to, you're supposed to have at least five. Oh. And so that means you have to give five people enough performances to make it worth their while to be available when you need them. Wow. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a little of a circular situation. Right. Are you hoping that'll get changed at some point? No, I'm, you're, I'm happy with you're that happy works. With that. I feel like I've gotten amazing musicians to play in my orchestras, people who have big careers oh. in classical music and jazz. Um, I wouldn't get them if... The requirement were that they'd be there every single person. Absolutely. Because it allows them to go play with the New York Philharmonic when they've got great. a performance. And right. then you've yeah. got these world-class... I mean, the pits of Broadway orchestras, uh, people should know that they are world-class musicians. They that are. are. I mean, some of the most incredible players. It's, it, it, it rocks me every time There's I do There's a, a trumpet player named Byron Stripling uh-huh. who has a big concert career. He plays every performing arts center in the country as a solo artist. Yeah. And he was our first trumpet player for How to Succeed. Oh, wow. And Ted, as I was mentioning, he's yeah. a, a superstar jazz yeah, musician. yeah. Um, of course I look for musicians who want to be there too, you know, um, respect the music. Yeah. We hired a wonderful violinist to play concert master Fiddler on the Roof, Mm -hmm. Kelly Hall Tompkins, Mm -hmm. who had never done a Broadway run before. She played on the cast recording of the King and I as an extra string player because you often beef up the string sections for recordings. And I was impressed by her and David Lai, our contractor suggested that we talk to her. And she really wanted to know what the deal was, what it would be like. And I was fully expecting her to take off 50% of the shows because she has a, a big career. Mm. But she loved playing that show and she felt very dedicated to being the musical voice of the fiddler. Huh. And she wanted, when people came to that show, her name was in the program they wanted, she wanted them to hear her. Aww. So she barely missed any performances. Talk a little bit about Let's your see. relationship with the contractor. Okay. So what, how, what exactly does a contractor do, and how does that relationship work between the contractor and the music director? Well, it's interesting having worked with Paul Gimignani first, mm-hmm. because Paul doesn't work with the traditional outside contractor. He mm-hmm. does hiring, or at least he did then. I'm, I don't want to speak for how he handles things now, but he used to do the hiring of the musicians himself. He used to pick everybody himself, and then he would have um, a man named Ron Sell in the old days, mm-hmm. who was a French horn player, be in the orchestra and do all the day-to-day managing of the payroll, mm-hmm. the subbing right. lists, et cetera, the instrument rentals. Um, but since after working with Paul, I've worked with a number of wonderful contractors, including John Miller, Seymour Redpress. Oh, yeah. oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and more recently with David Lai. Yes. Um, so it's a discussion about hiring, you compare notes about who are your favorite players for this show, for this book. Style. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, who also are going to be good sitting next to each other, who's, who should play the lead book, who should play the second book. Mm-hmm. Um, also realize that people move within a pit. For example, if you have three trumpets in an orchestra, you should be prepared that the second and third trumpet players will all end up playing first trumpet. First, yeah. um, so you have to keep that in mind. Right. Same thing with your violinists. You know, they'll, they'll all move up. Yeah. Um, and then usually you let the contractor make the calls to the musician, so it's all very clear, the chain of command. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if there are problems, you know, then you have to work things out with the help of the contractor too, which has happened occasionally. Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
Your first, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but your first Broadway musical directing credit is my favorite year. Is that correct? How did that come about for you, going from synth just a few years earlier to conducting? Flaherty and Aarons. Right. Yeah. I did a few shows after Sunday. I did, um, I subbed on Song and Dance, subbed on Starlight Express. Falsetto. I subbed on Drood and then took over one of the chairs for a year. Um, And then Les Mis. the original music director in New York, Robert Billig, Bob Billig yeah. um, needed to go to L.A. to set the L.A. company. And neither of the assistants in New York wanted to take on the conducting while <laughs> he was gone. And I had subbed on it already as a keyboard player. So I put my hat in the ring and yeah. they gave me an audition. I had to conduct the first act as nice. an audition. Um during which I lost the opportunity to work on Barbara Streisand's Broadway album because I got a call Oh, literally during that hour and a half that I was conducting no. the first act of Les Mis. No by way. the time I collected the message intermission, Scott Frankel had gotten the job. Oh, <laughs> wow. That's okay. Um, but it's okay. Um, and I, so I conducted Les Mis on Broadway for maybe two months while Bob was in LA. And that's like an epic. I mean, I, I, as an actor, I did it for like three years, but as a conductor, you're, I mean, I, my mentor, Kevin Stites did it and he would be literally soaking yeah. by the, cause it's not like a book musical where you can sit down, have a little drink. There's one you, chance to grab a glass that's it. of water. <laughs> you go. One you, chance. Three hours. Three, three and, hour, and a half. Two, yeah, that's right. Cause that's before the, the cuts. So that's right. I did it in the second year. That's crazy. Yeah. My God. So it, I mean, that's, that, so that's, a, all right. Yeah. Yeah. That was a trial by fire. Oh yeah. So all of this, all of this, this is leading towards. Right. So to your original question. So I saw two possible paths at that point. One was to continue to be an associate and possibly take over something. Mm-hmm. But the other was to be the Paul Gimignani to the next generation of Sondheim. That's right. And yeah. I thought that that would be, of course, more interesting for me. So I started putting out feelers with both directors and writers about other projects that I could work on. Um, so I was particularly reaching out to people my age Smart. So there was a whole crew of people to go to. Like in your late 20s? Bill Finn was the first for me. I had done his show um, Romance in Hard Times already by the time I'd done my favorite year. Mm -hmm. We'd done two productions of that. Um, And I was already, I had done a reading for Michael John Lacusa of a show show that never got produced. Wow. Um, I had already met and worked with Ricky Gordon a little bit. Love him. Adam Gettle, I had met at the recording session for Sunday in the Park with You George. picked all the good ones, Ted. Yeah. <laughs> oh Ted got in there early. <laughs> and because I had worked at La Jolla Playhouse, I had met Dez. Ah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was through... Uh, so I started music directing at the Playhouse first, I think. Um, I did a funny thing happened on the way to the forum there mm-hmm. with Ernie Sabella, nice. Jonathan Freeman, and Jeff Blumenkrantz. Oh, my gosh. Um... Liz Torres. It was a pretty great production. And then did Elmer Gantry there mm-hmm. with him and How to Succeed. But How to Succeed was after my favorite year. Yes. I guess I must have met Ira Weitzman probably yeah. first through the Playwrights Horizons things that I did, including Michael Johns. And that's how you, yeah, all right. So I think I was on Ira's radar. And Ira, you know, is that sort of unsung, unsung hero of all the musicals at Lincoln Center. So he, I don't really remember how I met Stephen and Lynn. Oh, I do. It was through Ira. And it was at Playwrights Horizons, and it was on Lucky Stiff. Ah, uh, uh, of course. For which I played all the auditions. Aha. Uh-huh. And I, I wanted, 
not the music directing job on that, but I wanted the orchestrating job on that show. Interestingly, I had already orchestrated a show at Yale. And so you, and this was oh, interesting. Not that much later. No, yeah, and, and your appetite and I, was. And this was a small show, and I thought I could really do a good job. Sure. Um, but I didn't get the gig. And but I had met Stephen and Lynn in the meantime, uh-huh. so I think that's probably how I got my it. favorite year. How fascinating! And were you intimidated to be holding the baton now in front of all of these people? I don't think I was because of the shows I had already done at La Jolla, um, and I'd already worked with Michael Starabin, who was orchestrating. And this is your first Lincoln Center show. It was a Lincoln Center uh-huh. the first one, and we they had just reopened the pit in that theater. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, that pit was originally on hydraulics, or that whole stage was on hydraulics. Yes. There are still, there used to be, I'm not sure they're there anymore, there used to be these giant screws that you could see in the basement that would up the lift or lower that stage. But they reopened the pit for our production of My Favorite Year. Um, so they were just figuring out how to do musicals that yeah. way in that theater again. We did the Zitz Probe, I remember, in the lobby. <laughs> um, and it was, that was a real thrill, I have to say. That opening number of that show. I, oh, we talk about it. It's a lot. It's one of the best opening numbers it's ever. So good. It yeah. is so good. Twenty million people. People so listen good. to it. It's well, maybe play it right now. It's yeah. so good. <laughs> oh, so that's that's absolutely. And unfortunately, that one does not run as as long as it should have run. You know, it, I agree, and I think there's still talk about revisiting that show. Mm, please, I'd love to see that happen. Um, I'd actually love a crack at directing that show if yeah. we could do some rewrites. The, the, there were two problems, I think. One was that Ron Lagomarsino is a wonderful director. It was his first musical. And I think that the pressures of trying to solve everything in just a couple of weeks, which is yeah. really all you get. They say, oh, you have five weeks of previews. It's really, you're talking about five rehearsals, yeah. basically, yeah. You know, yeah. to make changes. That was, I think, a lot for him to handle. And it was also Joe Dougherty's first musical. He was the book writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lynn and Stephen hadn't written 100 musicals yet either. No. Um, and we... We had a big shift in our star because Victor Garber was swan when we did yes. a long workshop of it. Oh. And then he left the project and Tim Curry came in. But Tim did not have a long rehearsal process because I don't think anybody expected that shift. And the workshop wasn't that far in advance of rehearsals. Yeah. So I think the thought was, oh, we'll basically just build on the workshop. Right. But when you have a completely different star with a different temperament, different they're two Ideas. totally different energies. Right. Yeah. It's going to change the production. It really meant that we were under-rehearsed, mm. I think. Yeah. So you said that you would love to direct it at some point. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you, when now, now that you're conducting at this point, are the flickers of, oh, a directing career sounds interesting to me, are they starting to be fanned in, the, in your background? I don't think quite yet. Great. Um, I had a really extraordinarily fertile decade in the 90s working with amazing directors, um, starting really with Des, well, with Vicky in college, and then with sure. Des professionally, mm-hmm. then followed quickly by Tina Landau, Graziella Danielle, Frank Galati, Hal yeah. Prince, um, Bart Shear, but I haven't worked with Bart yet. Yeah, that yeah. Um, but Ann Bogart, did I mention her? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm leaving out people, so forget but you're me. One. No, 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 please. You've got like yeah. a All those shows. people, one, one common trait they had was that they were very welcoming of me into the process early on. Um, so Des, for example, is an ex- extremely collaborative artist, and he likes his team to gather almost nightly to plan the next day's work yeah. and to plan the design. So I was invited to design meetings on all these shows. That's How incredible. How often is a music director involved in that? Never. And even to this day, Bart sometimes will invite me to sneak a peek at how the set's going and see if I have any you know, reactions. Yeah. 
Um, and they also trusted me to coach singers in their performance, not just in their music. Yeah. Um, and Bogart and Tina, for example, I did a show with them at the Alley Theater. They actually gave me two scenes to direct, basically. That's because amazing. they thought I had the musical theater chops that maybe they didn't quite at that point. Sure. And these were very musical theatery moments. Um, so I felt like I was getting a directing education that even assistant directors don't always get yeah. because I was actually making decisions with them. Yeah. I was helping them figure stuff out. We were making arrangements, you know, like the Brotherhood of Man arrangement mm-hmm. that Janine and I made with Des. That was a real three-way collaboration about how to reconceive this number for Lilius White, for a director who was interested in saying something different with that number than it normally says. I didn't know that. Um, so this, the groundwork was laid, I would say, in those years. Yeah. But it wasn't until um, the late 90s. That's when you killed it. I mean, like those shows, when I was writing on the list of uh, the, <laughs> Floyd Collins, A New Brain, Saturn Returns, it, it, it's the, the the breadth of work you did is unbelievable. Thanks, uh, Ted. Well, I it's hope there's un- more to come. <laughs> Wait, well, I mean, but it's not like you Ted's were like still oh, alive. classical so, stuff, yeah. revival, yeah. how to succeed. But then it's like new concurrent yeah. musicals of people that are new. Do you actively seek that out? The versatility. I yeah. do in my life in general. Mm-hmm. I'm um, sort of a restless artistic type, and I um, although I've certainly done semi long runs, I haven't done something like Phantom, but I've done a show for a year or so. Yeah. Um, I'm always trying to stretch. Um, so I take on shows that I actually feel like maybe I'm not super equipped to do because <laughs> I'm going to learn how to do it while I'm doing it. That's marvelous. Um, so like Romance and Hard Times had a lot of gospel in it and mm. I have absolutely zero <laughs> gospel experience, but I learned on the job and yeah. I did all the vocal arranging for that show and oh. I learned a lot. And similarly working with David Yazbek would not necessarily have been an obvious pairing, but I felt like we did really great work together. Right. This oh, is yeah. the Full Monty you're talking Full Monty about. Full Monty and Dirty yeah. Round Scoundrels. Right. Oh, Jack O'Brien, of course, is another Oh, one. Jack O'Brien. Yeah. Genius. Um, so the, the shift into directing happened for two reasons. Um, I went on a trip with my family to Eastern Europe. We went to um, Prague and Budapest oh. um, over the Christmas holiday. And I went on a lot of trips with my family. I have a younger sister and two parents, and we, we traveled all through our lives together. Um, but at this point, I was an adult, and it, hadn't, it, had been, it had been a while since we'd gone on a trip together. Um, and I caught a cold right as we were leaving New York and didn't sleep on the plane as a result and got completely turned around with jet lag when we landed in Budapest. And... I think I was sharing a hotel room with my sister, so I couldn't even turn the lights on. So I was literally up all night long in the dark, not able to read, listen to music, do anything. And so I had, you know, eight hours of thinking time in the dark. Mm -hmm. How often do you get that? And I had it for multiple nights. (laughs) Um, So it was a real opportunity to just take a look at my life. Um, So when was that? And she'll say it was around 2000. Um, so I was approaching 40 uh-huh. and I think that's also a point when you want to take stock. Yeah. And think, I can tell you as a 37 year old almost it is. Right. So I was 38 or something. <laughs> yeah. So I started to look forward and say, well, you know, what do I really still want to accomplish? What will make me happy to look back upon when I'm 70 right. or 80 or whatever? Right. You know, will I have 
done what I want to have done with my life. And so again, I sort of saw two paths and I said, well, I can keep doing what I'm doing or I can try something different. Um, and I thought I should keep pushing myself. And I think one of the things I've struggled with my whole life is this sort of recreative art versus creative art. Mm. Right? And apparently when I was very little, like even before I started lessons on any instrument, I was full of music and I was making up songs and... Um, very creative. I was also a big um, artist. I used to draw feverishly. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom has saved stacks and stacks of paintings and drawings I did when wow. I was very young. And they're quite good, I yeah. mean, if I do say so. <laughs> in fact, I, I was obsessed with the movie Mary Poppins. Oh. oh, yeah? And I saw it in the theater something like six times. <laughs> and I drew Mary Poppins incessantly. <laughs> and I did close-ups of her feet. And I did close-ups of the parrot's head on her umbrella and of her hat. And, oh, fascinating. Uh, my mom saved a lot of these, and she dated them. And, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, well, so those do. I actually, yeah. I, so, of course, I've idolized Julie Andrews my whole life. Mm-hmm. And Sound of Music also was a very big influence. So I finally got to work with her for one day. <gasps> Scott Frankel knew about my obsession with Julie Andrews, was working with her on putting it together at Manhattan Theater Club. And there was a day he had to do orchestra rehearsals and needed a sub to play tech. Yep. So he hired me knowing that it would be a dream come true. So I got to work with her for a day, got to have dinner with her in between, <gasps> and I brought her one of these childhood drawings and had her autograph it for me. It's a, a, a treasured object. Amazing. But anyway, the cool. point of this story is that I think I was very free in my expression at that early age. And then I got started to get frustrated with my drawing, as kids can get. Mm-hmm. Um, because you, you realize it, people aren't stick figures or, right. you know, you sure. want to start drawing in three dimensions mm-hmm. with perspective and you actually could use help at that point. Right. So I asked my parents to sign me up for an art class at school and I went, all excited, and they turned me away at the door. And I don't, you know, I was very young, so I may have gotten this story wrong over the years, but my... Memory is that I had signed up for a course that was for older kids, and they turned me away because I was too young. But I somehow misread that as a rejection. Yes. And I stopped doing that kind of art. And I started doing geometric art that was all done with rulers, with spirograph. Mm -hmm. I did string art where you nail things in and you... I did macrame, I did quilling, which is this paper twirling thing. Yeah, okay. But all sorts of things that are not really as... Scary. Yeah, there's there's a safeness safeness to them. There's a ruler to hang on to. There's control. Interesting. There's you know what mm-hmm. I mean. Mm-hmm. Totally there are knots to make. Yeah. Um, and I think that I had an influence on me as a musical person mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And I stopped thinking of myself as a composer, and I was more of an interpreter. Mm. So the same thing. I think that went on for me all through my young adult life. And at this point, when I was sitting in the dark for eight hours. I started thinking, what should I be pushing myself to do something where there is a blank page? Mm. You know? And so I didn't go to all the way to the point of composer, which may still be a phase for me going I was forward. Ask you that, yeah. But at least I thought, let me do something that taps into my artistic visual, you know, love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my love of working with actors, with designers. Let me try pushing myself. So I came home with that in my mind, and I came home to a, either an email, it might be pre, it's pre-email actually, so it must have been a voice message, from Marjorie Samoff, who ran the American Music Theater Festival in Philadelphia, which mm-hmm. had produced Floyd Collins originally. Yeah. Right. They'd commissioned and produced right. the original production. And I had um, very, now it was called the Prince Music Theater, yeah. and she was applying for a grant to have an associate artist at the theater, and she was interested in my doing that 
I think as a music director, basically, yeah. as a music expert, because sure. she only produced musicals, right. new musicals. Right. So I said, listen, I'd be interested in working with you, but I have to tell you, I'm really interested in directing right now, so if we could work some directing into this, yeah. you got a deal. And to her credit, she said, why not? Brilliant. Marvelous. So um, I became an associate artist of that theater for a few years, um, and my first project I hoped would be Lady in the Dark, because mm. that was a project I'd been thinking about for a long time, and she loved it too. Mm. She decided it was too expensive a production for that following season, so we put it off a year. And I did a highly experimental uh, chamber work called Charlotte Life or Theater, huh. which was brand new. Wow. A, um, very complicated to tell you about, so I'll just keep it short, but it's a, a piece about a, a, an artist who lived in Berlin and France um, during World War II and who painted a collection of 730-odd paintings that she collected, and she called it a musical in three colors. <laughs> and it's full of uh, musical illusions, and it's the story of her life and her family. Um, she was killed by the Nazis as a young woman. This work of hers survived, was rescued by her parents, and um, Elise Toron and Gary Fagan adapted it for the stage. Mm. And asked me to direct it. So huh. that was my first project. And it happened, we were in rehearsal. Um, oh, no, so that was my very first project. We actually had a visa problem because I was supposed to have great help from a British director choreographer um, who never got her visa and could never oh. come. So huh. not only was I directing my first project, I was sans choreographer for most I of it. I don't even... <laughs> when you challenge yourself, you really like... I actually choreographed some of the numbers. <gasps> I mean... <laughs> Um, That's crazy. That's incredible. It's a beautiful show, actually. We've been talking about possibly remounting it now. Oh, marvelous. Please do so. And what was the woman's name? Was Charlotte? Solomon. Charlotte Solomon. Yep. So if our listeners want to do some research. And her work is at the uh, Amsterdam Jewish Museum. Okay. And has been exhibited all over the world. It was actually exhibited at the New York Jewish Museum while we were performing it in Philadelphia. Oh, my gosh. Wow. It's a remarkable story. There's yeah. a wonderful book that, that's a collection of the paintings and has all the history. Wow. Well, let's hope you bring it back. So actually, this is connected to the directing story. Yeah. Um, I was the music director for the early stages of the show Ragtime. Oh. You know, I'd worked a lot with Stephen and Lynn already. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I'd worked for Garth Drabinsky on Kiss of the Spider Woman. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I was invited to be part of that team, and we did a number of workshops up in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made the uh, cast album that was made up there. The sort of songs from Ragtime. Oh, yes, right, yeah, right, yeah, 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 that one disc. But then yeah. um, I couldn't actually come to a contract agreement with Garth to spend a year in Toronto and then another year in New York. So I had to leave the production, sadly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was facing a completely empty year because I thought I was going to be in yeah. Toronto for a year. Um, Janine called me, and this is Janine Sasori. She had been yeah. music directing Titanic at that point, and she had to leave to do Violet because Violet was my favorite produced. musical. And one of mine, absolutely. Yep. And of course, she had to do her own musical rather than of music course. back to somebody else's. So she said that I should call Maury, who I knew from Yale, because he, prof- he was the head of music yeah. at Yale yeah. when I was there, about taking her place. So I did call him, and he hired Kevin Stites instead. Right. Um, but then Janine called me back, and she said, well, this is not going to go your way, but um, I think you would really love working with Richard Jones, the director, and they're looking for somebody who can play piano and violin and sing. <laughs> So, what do you think? <laughs> so, like, hello. So I auditioned. Who else are you I had get? to learn a Shaw monologue. <laughs> what? In British accent, which never happens. They for made musical. you do yes. a monologue? Ibsen or Shaw, I think was the requirement. That's incredible. <laughs> Vicky coached me 
on my who audition. Who was in it. I mean, right. Yeah. She wasn't yet. She, I mean, yeah. right. Um, so we all auditioned. All our friends from Floyd Collins audition. Uh, there was a huge Floyd contingent in the cast, ultimately. Yeah. Um, I think Jeff Blumenkrantz and I auditioned for the same role. <laughs> and we, we, we promised we would call each other once we got the call. So that was a great experience. I thought, and I took the job partially also because I thought if I'm interested in directing, I should see what it's like to be directed mm-hmm. and be directed by somebody really good. Yeah, brilliant. As an actor, definitely. Um, let's now jump to the amazing work that you've done at Lincoln Center, mm-hmm. and we'll start off with Light in the Piazza mm-hmm. first, for which you won the Tony Award, correct? For, for orchestrations. For orchestrations. Um, gorgeous show, brilliant show, and full circle because you have Vicki Clark again. And, and Adam Gettle, who you did all these shows yeah, as well. That's right. This is great. Um, I advocated for casting Vicky. She wasn't in the first readings. She was a new mother, I think, right. at that point. Yeah. Or no, maybe not new. She was a new mother when we did How to Succeed, but I think she couldn't leave home because she still had a young child. Right. Let me ask you this. You've come back to Lincoln Center so often in your career. Why? What is it that draws you back there? Well, I think you ask anybody who works there, and they say it's their favorite place. Um I think it's Ira and Andre, and now Adam Siegel, and, and before Bernie, too. I mean, just the people in charge, they set the tone. I mean, that's true, I think, in any industry, yep. any job you have. Your boss is incredibly important. Um, they're such smart, gentle, and caring people. And for me, particularly, um, music is so important to them. You know, you, you always feel like music is getting its due in a musical, mm-hmm. but you don't always feel. Right. Um, And when we've done these shows, they've really put the orchestra front and center, literally. Which, South Pacific, my God, was one of the most magical moments I've ever had in the theater when the stage went back and there was... There was pressure not to do that because it was going to be too expensive. The pressure to have the full orchestra? No, to pull the pit back. Really? To pull the stage back, rather. Worth every penny. Well, (laughs) there was a question whether it would be worth it. It wasn't like, oh, we won't spend the money. It's like, we're going to put all this effort and all this money in and then it's going to be, eh, was the worry. <laughs> no, 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 no. But, no, both, both, that no, but Bart and I, and I, I'm sure Andre like, really felt strongly that it was very important, and so they did it. Let me ask you, how do you deal with the states uh, on revivals when you're, when you're going back to the works of Frank Lesser, Rogers, and Hammerstein? How does that relationship work? Well, you, often you're working very closely with a relative. And, um, mm. you know, in both, in, in, in the Frank Lesser, it's, it's you know, um, Joe. Joe Lesser who is a brilliant theater oh, yeah. artist herself, right. and with Mary Rogers, yeah. also a brilliant theater yeah. artist. So you're in good hands, yeah. and you're with people who understand what the theater's like. Then They know their husband or their father would have made adjustments to fit mm-hmm. the situation, so they're not draconian in their rigidity of, mm-hmm. you know, you can't change a note. Right. Um, but they also, they have opinions. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's almost as if you had the composer there, but if you're lucky, you have somebody like Joe Lesser or Mayor Rogers who knows that if the composer were there, he'd be rewriting. Right. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And there's, um, I've also worked quite a lot with the Kurt Vile estate, and mm. they also have a, a reputation for being very prickly and you can't change it up. It's not true. Mm. Kim Kowalki, who runs that organization, is also a man of the theater, and he knows that something has to work. And there's no point in sticking to a rule if it's just going to ruin the production. Right. Do you try to approach this stuff fresh without looking at the previous? No. No, you, you <laughs> good. That's a great answer. I don't, and I know that from an actor's point of view, that might be important. From mine, I don't think it's helpful to ignore everything that happened before. I actually want to know everything that's happened. Look before. at all that wonderful Trudy Ritman. Because yeah, 
first of all, the original mm-hmm. production. Right. I want to know as much as I can about it because that's where it got created. That's right. But I'm also interested in all the revivals. I think you learn a lot, both positive and negative, from mm-hmm. listening to other people's. Like, I love that. I don't like that. Um, wow, I would never have thought of that. Or what, what's my version of that? Right. But my general principle with revivals with Bart has been very much start with the original and only change something if it's really not working for your production. How fascinating. We so try good. not to change a note unless we absolutely have to. That's great. Um, with Des, it's been a different approach because mm-hmm. the productions themselves have been updated or set in a different time period. Right. Oh, yeah, very different. different ideas for how the numbers should go. Yeah. Um, so that's a, a very different animal where you really are saying, okay, we're going to put Guys and Dolls back into the 1930s. So what is that going to do to the music? Right. Isn't that sort of what happened with South Pacific? Because very little was changed in South Pacific. Right. Uh, orchestrally, I think there's some incidental music in the second act. But the audiences came to it thinking, this is new. We've never heard this before. And really, it's because they haven't heard it with a full orchestration in so long. But I mean, I have to say encores should get its due here, too, because we, of course. we give them a shout out. So because yeah. yeah. we, we, we are do live in an era where people can hear. You can go see a great, full orchestra. Right. Yeah. Um, this is this is so wonderful. One last question for you. If I gave you an unlimited amount of money, mm. what show do you want to direct? What show do you want an well, audience to see? I want to, to revisit Lady in the Dark. That's yes. it? Yeah, I mean, and that would be fantastic to do with a big budget because it's a lavish mm-hmm. show all about the fashion industry. It has three psychedelic dream sequences in it. Could I ask you for a dream cast or you don't Well, Vicky and I have been talking for of a long course. time. Oh, about of course. I was hoping that would be yeah. the answer. <laughs> and then it'd be fun, you know, if we could get Hugh Jackman to play the movie star because there's uh, a, yeah. the part that Victor Mature played in the original. Yeah. I don't think that's stretching either. You no, know, I don't think it is at all. I would do that. Yeah. And then there's the part Natalie Schaefer from Gilligan's Island played. Yes. So that's a fun one to try to think about huh. casting. And the Danny Kay role? Oh, and Danny Kay, of course, yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you, well, uh, we'll just give you a blank check and <laughs> we'll be there. <laughs> it'll bounce, but best of luck, Ted. Thank you. I can't tell you how much we appreciate you coming in and talking to oh, us. My great pleasure. Feels like we could talk for a long time. I know. Actually, I, 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 really I feel does. bad. And, and we're really thankful for the, all the gifts you've given to our industry. Thank really you. special. Well, it's been my great pleasure to be part of this industry yeah. and to be working with all these collaborators who are so inspiring. And I look forward to a lot more. Kevin, guess what? What, Rob? We now have over 50 iTunes reviews. Huzzah! Huzzah, indeed! We are climbing those iTunes rating charts. That's amazing. How do we climb even higher? Can you take (laughs) me high enough? Little rock of ages for you. Do you know I like that you took it up so high too? You didn't even you like went right to the tenor place. I was gonna do no Robert Goulet. Like, no, can you take me high enough? Thanks for coming out tonight. Ooh, and my falsetto there. <laughs> Thank you. And a little Sergio Frankie. Yeah, a little Sergio. It's never over. <laughs> Much like the 24-hour buffet down in the lobby of the Dunes Casino. Me and Sid the Caesar. <laughs> Two nights only at the Mirage. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Well, lovely oh. listeners, this is where you come in. This is how we're going to climb those iTunes rating charts. That's right. Lovely listeners, if you love us, would you go to iTunes? Click on the iTunes store. Search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Then click on Ratings and Reviews. Under the Customer Reviews, click Write a Review. Then let us know what you think from one to five stars. That's right. And you can leave comments, too, like, Kevin Thomas is a god. Or, Rob, who the hell is Hervé Villages? Who? 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 
is Hervé Via Via Oh my god I fell for it again You fell for it That wasn't even the script The man has never done One musical in his entire life And he gets mentioned More than Steven Right but I love him From James the Bond Okay anyway Guys help us out Please Thanks everyone Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.